I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 86 for April 2020. Yeah, uh, the first lockdown edition. The first lockdown edition, indeed. Uh, different parts of the uh, city, recording on different devices. I'm Duncan. And I'm Simon. And 1986 was the year of aliens. Aliens, y'all. I could almost just finish it there, but I yeah. won't. Um, there's also Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Stand By Me, The Golden Child, Little Shop of Horrors. The double critical hit for Oliver Stone of Salvador and Platoon. Spike Lee's debut, She's Gotta Have It. Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law. Paul Newman finally won an Oscar for Scorsese's Color of Money. Bob Hoskins won the Best Actor at Cannes for Mona Lisa. Mm. Gary Oldman broke out with cult hit Sid and Nancy. And the films I remember seeing at the cinema as an 11-year-old were Big Trouble in Little China, Labyrinth, Three Amigos, and Highlander. Three Amigos. Yeah. All right, there's a lot of horror in ASIC. Some of it good, some of it woeful, but it's hard to see a trend like I have with some of the other years. Slashes seem to be tailing off. Uh, Friday the 13th turned to comedy with Jason now reanimated corpse and one of the most enjoyable entries in the series, part six, Jason Lives, uh, yes. one of my co-host favorites. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre followed suit with a very, very goofy part two. And elsewhere, Slash has started getting a bit experimental with April Fool's Day getting all meta, uh, the Hitcher making French fries terrifying, um, and the gritty realist retelling of the subgenre, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, undoing all the tropes of the Slasher film. The best horror, I think, of 86 was also a love story, David Cronenberg's The Fly. But unless you're calling Aliens a horror film, uh, and I'm not, I'm going to say it's an action film. Are you with me on that? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was a year for some serious schlock. Spookies, Troll, Troll, and the laughable <laughs> Rawhead Rex are uh, rough, rough watches, man. Uh, the Abomination reviews itself. And this was a year that Stephen King strapped behind the, uh, stepped behind the camera for the first time and the last time with Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> so pretty, pretty hard year. Yeah, it's pretty uh, tough. Yeah, pretty tough. And for once, I'm not signaling out some splatter because... My overriding film memories of 86, uh, me and my brother making this kind of deal, this pact. Uh, I'll go to see his stupid film if he'd, get, if, if he'd uh, get up and go to my stupid film. Uh, so his pick was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And of course, we had a blast. What a great choice. Uh, my pick was Highlander, which uh, remains one of my favorite viewing experiences. Uh, so we both won, you know? In fact, fantastic. I loved Highlander so much that I gave up on Highlander's Highlander 2 after less than half an hour. I just I, I didn't need to see one of the greatest films of my teen years just ruined, you know? I've still never seen Highlander 2. Yep. I've, yeah, I don't know what I don't know what happens in that film. Yeah. I uh I watch Highlander 2. Um oh. and we we talked about it on the podcast. Um mm. yeah. Uh, I think it was one of the the horrible sequels or something like that. Uh, or fantasy oh, right, film, right. fantasy films, oh, maybe. Right. I feel like we've talked about everything by now. I yeah, I actually think it might have been fantasy films, so I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. Oh, good stuff. I just yeah. turning off. <laughs> just, just not. We're out of this. Um, look, I own eleven films. This is something I'm doing now. I own eleven films from '86 on DVD and Blu-ray. A lot of the usual suspects, I think, if you know me. Uh, Aliens, Blue Velvet, uh, The Fly, naturally Friday Thirteenth Part Six. Uh, but there's a few culty, trashy fun flicks in that bundle as well. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, obviously, with Dennis Hopper. Um, Killer robot in a more movie, Chopping More. Uh, taglines, buy or die, and where shopping can cost you an arm and a leg. <laughs> so brilliant and so bad. And finally, Super Loose Lovecraft Adaptation from Beyond, uh, which was an enormous bit of fun. We played that at a Halloween night. I don't know if you were there for that one. That's the one where the power cut out. Uh, no, I didn't see that one, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was up to a scene where they go into the basement because they have to cut the power off to this <laughs> um, hellish machine that they've got going. And then the power did go off. And people oh. just thought I was playing a prank, hey? Yeah. Uh, but that's no. Pr- that's, got... Yeah. That's pretty meta, right? That's a very... Um, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, could, I, I could not have timed it better. Um, <laughs> that, but that's a great film. Uh, and that's from genre titan Stuart Gordon, who passed away in March. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah so he, uh, the director of The Reanimator, of course, as well. That's right. Yeah, I recognised his name. Cool. And so, uh, Simon, what have you been watching? Uh well, a little bit. I've, I've pretty much, and we'll, talk, we'll get into this, I've pretty much stayed with uh, feel-good films, um, I think, this month. And there's been a bit of re-watching going on. Uh, so, you know, I happened to one night turn on the TV and there was uh, Anchorman. So I stayed the duration there. I watched that again. I watched Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, again. Um, Rogue One, again. So there's a lot of, um, I think that's a sign of the times. You know, people are looking for, you know, a bit of feel-good. Yeah, a bit of comfort as well, probably. Yeah, a bit of comfort viewing. Um, And look, approximately 21 years ago, just before the lockdown started, because that's how long it feels like to me, I saw Guns Akimbo, which was the last film I saw in a cinema. And uh, I guess the last film I will see in a cinema for a little while. Yeah. And I'm not happy to report I did not like it, eh? Right. I remember when I first saw images for it and being tickled by the the always likable Daniel Radcliffe and his gym jams with guns bolted to his hand, uh, uh, to his hand, sorry, to both his hands, forced to compete in some sort of futuristic, dare I say dystopian, Duncan? (laughs) Um, Most dangerous game ripoff. And he's the best thing about this. The action is all that fast, incoherent, kind of CGI-assisted stuff that tries to create the energy in post. And I don't really care for that. I never have. I'd I'd like to see good, clean action created on, on screen rather than have to be edited into existence. And it, it's that sort of action where I, where I can get quite lost and I don't know whether it's good anymore at some point. Yeah. Radcliffe is kind of an incompetent dolt, hunted by ruthless killer Samara Weaving, who is incapable of killing him for narrative reasons, it would seem. He always just manages to get away, which seems ridiculous, because she can kill anyone. And it's, that started to become kind of wearing to me as a plot device as well. Reese Darby shows up as a Darbyish character. If you told me this all takes place in kind of the extended hunt for the Wilder People universe and that he's the same character he played in that movie, I'd have no reason to doubt you. I think I'd have, um, and it gives me no pleasure to rag on the work of a Kiwi director. This is by uh, Jason Lee Howden. And to be fair, the film picks up steam and it hits a kind of a good section as Radcliffe and Samara team up. But it's all a little too late for me. Um, I think the style to it reminds me of, um, when I was watching it, it reminded me of Scott Pilgrim. There's a lot of those kind of, little video gamey elements and there's a bit where he bumps into someone and all those like uh song hedgehog rings bust out of him you know mm-hmm. and i was thinking oh man i kind of feel like this was done better 10 years ago yeah and having said that i didn't love scott pilgrim either i thought it was kind of a you know a lesser edgar wright film at the time but it certainly did the style uh yeah. better yeah probably had the budget for it and probably edgar wright's maybe more of a um uh kind of kinetic director as well perhaps yeah and i think this is howden's what second film so you know mm. um plenty of time there mm. cool that yeah must and, seem um, like a long time ago yeah it really does eh? it's it's crazy yeah and, uh, what about yourself what have you been watching one that i wanted to talk about actually was uh seven men from now which is a uh, 1956 film it's the first collaboration between b weston stalwarts director Bert Botticay and writer Bert Kennedy. Uh, legendary Western actor Randolph Scott plays the lead, a role that apparently Robert Mitchum was keen on and John Wayne reputedly regretted turning down because he'd just done the searches. Randolph Scott is a man in search of the seven men responsible for his wife's death, which is where the title comes from. In a memorably deadly opening, we see his resolve and ability. And while Scott is fine in the role, it would have been interesting to see what the others, especially Mitchum, would have done with it, particularly against the other lead, because the other lead is Lee Marvin, who inevitably steals the show. Just a couple of years after he lit up the screen in The Big Heat, we often mention about those, we often mention on this podcast about those old school actors who emit raw masculinity, and Marvin fits that bill. Uh, this is like a really nice mm. touch when he, when he lights a cigarette. Um, from a freshly dead man's cigarette. Like he picks it up out of the guy's mouth yeah. and lights his own cigarette. Uh, there's no, heaps of nice little um, physical touches. You can see Marvin obviously just ad-libbing and the director going, going along with it. But rather than being an out-and-out villain, Marvin plays as a morally ambiguous character. And there's one scene here where he just owns a screen, taking every inch of it away from his co-stars. And rather than an explosion of violence, it's actually quite a subtle 
threatening scene. And there's also a pleasing twist in the tale that even catches Marvin's character off guard. And I didn't necessarily see coming. So that's quite unexpected for this kind of film. The film is taut and the California desert is used to great effect. Attacking Native American hordes, charging down sand dunes, hide and seek shootouts among really striking rock formations. There's a stripped back splendor that those like kind of late 40s, early 50s westerns had. And while Seven Men from now doesn't get anywhere near shading, you know, like Anthony Mann and Jimmy Stewart's best work together, it does have its moments. And it's also notable for being one of the final roles for the lead actress, Gail Russell, who had a tragically short life that was cut down by a crippling alcoholism at the age of just 36. Um, which is remarkable. And so this film, she, she's, I think she's like 31, 32. It's a really sad story, but John Wayne was actually the one who had got her the role and he um, produced this as well, his production company. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was I've one not of the even ones. heard of it, to be honest with you, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. It's worth checking out. Like I say, um, Lee Marvin, just oh, so good. How come you ever to marry such a handsome woman? Well, I... We fell in love, Mr. Masters. Love? That's a mighty fancy word. That's the trouble with the likes of you and me, Sheriff. We never take time out for the fancy things of life. We leave that to the fellas that run sort of gentle, soft. And so uh, now we're on to the top five. And um, as we know, the world has changed fairly rapidly in the space of the last month. And for us cinephiles, it is a difficult time. Latest release is being delayed. Um, I'm looking at you, No Time to Die. Uh, But there will be a flow-on effect as there haven't been any films in production for at least four weeks as well. So there is, of course, many sources to purchase films from or streaming sites. But what about some places to see films for free? Well, we have a few suggestions for you to consider the next time you open your web browser. So here are five films to lock in while you're in lockdown. Okay, I'm going to kick it off. And my criteria for picking my three flicks is there had to be films I'd be meaning to see for a while. Films on my must-watch list, if you like. The one of my picks is, as you'll find out, a little little bit of a cheat. (laughs) They have to be be decent quality. I'm not going to recommend some 240p YouTube upload that looks like you're watching Minecraft through a swamp. (laughs) And they have to be fun films. Uh, I talked about this earlier, but For me, this is a stressful time. We're all feeling a bit on edge. And while I like a serious, sometimes confronting watch, not this month. This month, I'm all about the good times. As it turns out, that means some seriously culty cinema, all from the 80s or or earlier. So expect nunchucks, ninjas, fast cars, fast men, tight pants, and loose dubbing. (laughs) So I'm kicking off my three films to watch during the lockdown with a bona fide cult classic. A gory satire with stunts, badassery, and genuinely funny, sneering Sylvester Stallone. A film that I really should have seen like many, many years ago. 1975's Death Race 2000, starring David Carradine, directed by Paul Bartel, and produced, of course, by Roger Corman. So, said in a... Stop me if you've heard this, folks. <laughs> stop me. A dystopian future, where America seems impoverished and led by a messianic president shrouded in dry ice who distracts the howling masses by organizing a brutal race across the country where killing innocent bystanders gets the drivers extra points. Which, by the way, is a rule system that now that I think about it is incredibly unclear. If you win the race, do the points even matter? Or is, it, is this one of these Harry Potter, you know, Quidditch things where it, it just, <laughs> that, no, one's, no one's really bothering? Just, you know, we just want to see stuff happen. <laughs> anyway, the hero of the death race is Frankenstein, a scarred and reassembled racer in a black mask and full leather bodysuit with and I love this, a cape, because this is a very low-budget film. There are only four other races, including a Nazi named Matilda the Hun, I love, described by the ridiculous over-the-top commentator as a member of the master race, a woman, uh, <laughs> with fans who wave swastika flags in support, and a 30s-style villain called Machine Gun Joe, played by a pre-breakout Sylvester Stallone. Look, Death Race 2000 is Hanna-Barbera wacky races with TNA, gore, big fruity action, and super broad satire. Though it's worth noting that what feels like ludicrous levels of satire can seem kind of prescient years later. After all, at one point, they direct attention away from governmental bungling by blaming the French. So that doesn't feel that ridiculous anymore, right? You know, give that 15 years to percolate. Um, But as I say, the action is both cartoonish and grizzly at the same time. There's a scene where a racer plummets to the death after being tricked with one of those fake black tunnels, which is actually just a painted cardboard backdrop. And they drive straight through it and over a cliff. 
I mean, that's just a Roadrunner cartoon. But in other places, Stallone's racer runs over someone's head and it bursts like a watermelon. I mean, it just pops. Uh, it's kind of this weird, silly juxtaposition, and I kind of love that, you know? Um, and I also like that after one of the deaths, a camera crew almost immediately is at the widow's house to get comments, you know? That doesn't seem that crazy anymore either, eh? That seems, you know, <laughs> that seems quite of the time. Um, there's also a great scene uh, where there's a euthanasia day at the local hospital where all the nurses roll all the old people out into the road to get run down. You know, I mean, it's just points after all. But like Car- Carradine's Frankenstein swerves off and runs the nurses down instead, <laughs> which is just, I mean, cruel and funny at the same time. It is, understandably, as you'd imagine, very low budget. It's a race across America, but mostly back roads with only five cars. So you'd expect, I imagine, hordes of fans gathered to cheer on the cars, but that's not what you get. If you told me in this vision of the year 2000 that America had maybe 30,000 people tops in the whole country, I'd buy that number. You know, that feels <laughs> right. And that's a Roger Corman production, eh? And as I said, it's gory and there's nudity, but... But on the version I watched, the nudity is all blurred out. And that's the version I'm going to link to as well, uh, which is pretty funny. You know, you get people mangled all over the place, but every boob or bum gets a tasteful blur. And this film is pretty equal opportunity on the nakedness front. Lots of beefcake boys getting their kits off alongside the ladies. David Carradine, fresh off one of young Simon's favorite TV shows, Kung Fu, which actually came out in um, 70, 73 or 72 or something. Right. And, and I love that show as a kid. So I don't know when it got to New Zealand if I was watching it on a Friday night. It must have taken forever to get down to this part of the world, eh? <laughs> yeah, they used to do those shows, all those ones, all those American ones. Yeah. I mean, I remember that as Friday night with the fish and chips. Um, and you'd get that and you'd get, do you remember the Planet of the Apes TV series? No, I think it's all slightly before my time, eh? Yeah. There was that and the Logan's Run TV series. I all think about it. It's the same era. And we right. must have got that maybe five or six years after America. Right. You know, if, I, if I have a fond memory of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was fresh off of Kung Fu. And he's pretty fun as Frankenstein. He's got this sneering cockiness down pat. And he plays that dangerous dude you're not sure that you should like, you know? Mm-hmm. Kind of perfect for that. Um, a puppy fat faced Sylvester Sloan makes for a decent campy villain. And I enjoyed his delivery of silly lines, like describing his navigator. Because in this world, all the drivers get navigators and they're always the opposite gender. So they're always <laughs> a male, female partner. He describes her as a baked potato, which is such a weird put down. <laughs> you know, it's such a funny insult. Uh, I also like that all of the racers drove real cars through real wide open spaces while real explosions went off. And in 2020, that's a pretty novel experience, I think, to see. So this, was a, this is definitely a film I'm glad to have finally caught up with. Its mix of silliness and ultraviolence is, is, is pretty rare nowadays. I mean, the whole thing comes down to a very, very silly visual pun, which I won't ruin for you. Um, it made me laugh out loud when I got to it. And that's the sort of film it is. It's goofy fun with a great cocky B-hero and just lots of over-the-top action and, and comedy. Yeah, I, I remember this film. I'm surprised you haven't seen it before. It's a shocker. It's Absolutely amazing yeah. to me that you have not seen this. In fact, oh. I would say, of we're in, as you know, we're in podcast 86, and this is right up there, I'd say, top three. I'm surprised after 86 episodes, <laughs> this is one of them you haven't seen. Uh, I, I remember watching this when I was 17, and my friend Kurt um, in Topol got it out, and I think he must have seen it before. He's like, ah, oh, check this out. And we watched it, and yeah, it was classic. I remember, obviously, I remember Stallone, and I remember the Frankenstein, and I, I vividly, vividly remember the nurse is taking everyone out in the wheelchairs and then him oh, swerving, so swerving to kill everyone. <laughs> like I was just like, that was just the most kind of um, cr- cruel and, and um, yeah, true, real dystopian kind of part to it uh, and satirical. But um, yeah, getting extra yeah. points for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so great. Um, yeah. No, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was cool. good fun. Um, have you moved have so you, fast too? Yeah, and I've never seen the remakes. Have you ever seen the remake? Oh, I've got no interest in that. Is that Statham? Yeah, Statham. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got yeah. zero interest in watching those. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't know. They just don't look appealing to me. And um, I think uh, Luke Goss at some point. So maybe Statham did the first one and then the second, um, you know, <laughs> right. the second death race was Luke Goss. So that's the stepping point, you know. Uh, stay them to Goss is um, the uh, way you go. That's that's the downward trajectory of remakes. Wow, Death Bros two thousand. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> uh, so how about you? What's your first? Uh, ah, well, yeah, um, veering off slightly from that. Um, sure. <laughs> look, in our household, we've obviously really been missing Italy for the last, well, actually last couple of months, to be honest. And um, so I've yep. been on a bit of an Italian cinematic kick and I'm, I'm happy to report there are a lot of them on YouTube. So um, both my picks are from the boot, as it's known. Uh, and my first is The Girl with a Pistol. Uh, and this 1968 comedy, the charming Monica Vitti leaves a small Sicilian village to track down her philandering lover across the UK to regain her dignity in the eyes of her people by shooting him. Um, the swinging 60s are on full display here. Particularly interesting is to see some lesser focus on cities in this era, like the cobblestone streets of Edinburgh, the dance halls of Sheffield, and the riverbeds of Bath. Now, what's also pleasing is the journey that Vitti's character goes on, both literally and figuratively. Look, Italian comedy films, even the critically lauded ones, can be hit or miss for me. I've got some real problems with some of them. Um, and sometimes the comedy is too broad or slapstick. Mm. Um, but here, it has a really nice blend of absurdity and satire. From the outset, it shows the gender-separated dance parties in Sicily, where the music blares across the city, but the women dance with women on one rooftop, staring longingly at the men, dancing with the men on another rooftop. Mm. Uh, it's an absurd setup, but one that shows everyone having a good time, but in this like really restricted way. Conversely, it also shows the swinging 60s of UK is actually having a positive effect, um, emancipating a woman from her dogmatic upbringing. The whitewashed stone buildings of Sicily are populated by black-clad wailing mamas and judgmental men, whereas the UK is shown as a far more progressive society. And the inclusion of a sequence in a gay bar is just mind-blowing for that era, particularly wow. as it... Yeah, particularly as it is displayed as normal and accepted. Um, and I'm not even sure in English cinema at that time they would have had the fortitude to show the gay to show the gay lifestyle at this time in such a nonchalant manner. Um, mm. It's, uh, you know, like now it seems quite quaint, but I was just like, well, you know, for, particularly for an Italian film, <laughs> I was not expecting that. Um, yeah. But this is Monica Vitti's show from start to finish. She expresses her undying love as well as her determination to kill her boyfriend to a party of shocked and amused Scots. She gets swept up in a she gets swept up in watching rugby matches and insists a man beat another man when she interprets inappropriate flirting as dishonorable insult that must be met with violence. Viti is both principled and naive, lustful and chaste, homicidal and scared. It's an entertaining performance and one that shifts and spreads like a smile slowly breaking out over 90 minutes. The film remains quirky and unpredictable throughout. Without giving away the ending, it also has an interesting denouement that shows a satisfying mental and emotional liberation for our female protagonist. Uh, the director, Mario Monselli, is one of the architects of the Italian comedy film scene. He'd later go on to direct the hit comedy, which I've spoken about before, Amici Mei. And he has a, a, a gentler hand than some of his kind of fellow comedy directors. He injects a bit of pathos and growth for his characters. And Joao is important throughout his work, as well as his rejection of the suffocating religious and cultural rules that exist in Italy at that time. Yeah, I, I recommend checking this one out, especially if you like 60s films. I think it'll be quite entertaining. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, he's an interesting director. Um, and so how do you spell his name? Uh, his name, Mario Monselli, which is M-O-N-I-C-E-L-L-I. Right, right. And, okay, cool. Uh, I'd, to, I'd like to look into his work. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's done some interesting stuff. I, I haven't delved that too deeply into it, so I think it's only mm. about the third film as I've seen, but I quite like his, um, his style because the kind of satire doesn't get in the way of the narrative, which is good. Um, and yeah. it has absurdist moments in it, but it doesn't get too silly or or, or abstract. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one to watch. Uh, I see uh, IMDb has him as, as writing 112 films. There you go. He, he died quite recently, I think, actually. So, yeah, um, yeah he lived to a quite, a, quite a ripe old age. So Yeah, yeah, yeah 2010. Mm. And what about yours? What's your next one? Well, look, as I warned you earlier, the second film on my list is a bit of a cheat. I'd set out to watch only films I hadn't seen before, and here I am doing a rewatch. But since I last watched 
1990, the Bronx Warriors, 30, <laughs> 30 years ago. I think it's justified to return to it. Basically, an Italian-produced merging of 1981's Escape from New York with 1979's The Warriors, the Bronx Warriors has Anne, the heiress to an arms empire, escaping to the quarantine Bronx where gangs rule. Here she is taken in by the riders and their long-haired biker leader, Trash. What a name, eh, Trash? Ah. <laughs> uh, a nasty cop called the Hammer sent into the Bronx to retrieve her. So that's your Escape from New York reference. And sets about playing the gangs off against each other, particularly a gang led by a man called the Ogre, who's kind of a benevolent leader of the territory. When Anne goes missing, Trash travels across the Bronx and enlists the aid of the Ogre to reclaim his girl. Look, it's hard to explain, I think, how big a deal films like this were when I was a teenager. We didn't yeah. know what a good film was, you know, or a bad film. There was no internet to guide us, precious few books to inform us. All we had to go on was the allure of the box art staring at us from the video store shelves. Eventually, if you're lucky, you'd learn some names and begin to maybe pick out some films with promise. But more often than not, the thinking went something like, hey, Mad Max, that was cool. I like Mad Max. And this film is in a post-apocalyptic future too. It's got a painting of a badass dude in leather with a big gun. And on the back, there's a picture of a souped-up car. Simon, of course, the artwork of the badass dude in the cover was inevitably exaggerated. The promises of wall-to-wall action somewhat overblown, and the cars were a bit of a bust as well. But that was like 80% of the video shelves at that point. You just had to pay your money and take your generally Italian-financed and shot short, uh, chance. And man, there were a lot of post-apocalyptic Italian Mad Max ripoffs. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, I remember a ton of these things on the shelves. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I remember this. I remember this, and I remember Bronx Warriors Two as well. Yeah, I, I I watched this and started watching Bronx Warriors Two, and then I think I think wisely um, just stopped. You know, <laughs> uh, I didn't need to relive that. I found out anyway. Look to the film. It opens strong with some cool shots of weapons and stuff, and a nifty shot between a skater skate that picks up Anne running through some underground tunnels. But unfortunately, then we meet Trash in the first of one of the films. Many, many sloppily choreographed fight scenes. And look, trash. I feel like I could spend the rest of the podcast just talking about him, both the <laughs> character and the enigmatic man who plays him. But I'm just going to get out of the way now. He's kind of terrible. He's good looking, <laughs> no doubt, with lustrous 80s hair metal hair, a moody pout, and a buff chest. But the first time you see him walk is, it's something, eh? It really is. <laughs> first off, his jeans are worn exceptionally high. He's pretty leggy anyway, so these mum jeans that have their waist hitched somewhere about his navel, they just make his proportions seem really odd. His walk is stilted as if maybe he was kicked in the balls before every take. And this man, there's no delicate way to say this. But the first time I saw him front on in those jeans, he had some sort of camel toe situation. It's a hell of a way to establish your sexy, macho He-Man love interest. This is more time, I think, than I've ever spent discussing how a man looks in jeans before. So I'm going to have to move on. Actor Mark Gregory's acting seems has a bit limited, but it's, as always, hard to tell when you're watching an Italian man, uh, an Italian man seemingly dubbed by a sleepy Tony Danza. Who knows? In his native Italian, Mark Gregory, real name Marco de Gregorio, might have been a revelation. Which brings me to the man behind the two tight jeans, Mark Gregory himself. Aside from a child actor role, his career actually began in 82 with 1990 The Bronx Warriors. And it finished 10 films and seven years later with The Last War Bus, by which point Gregory was apparently 24, <laughs> which means he's 17 in this film. Oh, wow. I mean, you, you know the film we're talking about. You've seen it. It's, um, you've seen it on the shelves at least. He said, that's a 17-year-old. That's a teenager, man. <laughs> That seems implausible. And, and, you know, maybe it is. I mean, who knows? The dude vanished into thin air pretty much as soon as his acting career finished. And no one knows where he's at now. Um, but 17 years old. Apparently yeah. he's like found, found in a gym and they're like, yeah, he's got the look. We'll make him a movie star. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. Yeah. Bronx Warriors. Bronx Warriors 2. I remember Bronx Warriors 2 vividly. It's, it's also got trash in it as well. Yeah, and, he's, he's the only returning character, I believe. Yeah, and I remember that. And um, back in the day, back in the 80s, they used to have people sometimes who would drive around with um, VHSs in their van, and they could, they'd actually home deliver. 
And, oh, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. And um, so we saw this guy and I remember we were, me and my mates were cycling around on the streets and we saw this bloke and someone knew him and he, he was, must be someone's brother's friend or something. And they said, he's like, oh yeah, yeah. And he gave us a video to watch for free. Um, and it was this, you know, because we would never have been able to get it out because we were yeah, yeah. Brock's Warriors too, and totally. we were probably we were probably like I would have still been in primary school at that point, I'd imagine. So uh, I was probably like nine or ten, and yeah, I remember watching it, just going, "Whoa, this is uber violent!" and think it was like really amazing and violent. Yeah, um, yeah so it's amazing how impressionable you are at that age. Oh, I yeah, look, and and it, look, I'm going to get back to it, man. I haven't finished talking about this film. Yeah. Um, and you're not wrong. It is actually pretty violent. Um, and look, I better get back to it before this whole thing comes a dissertation on what a 17 year old looks like in, in <laughs> tight jeans. Um, I appreciated yeah, the Bronx. Yeah, it's, it's getting into bad territory. I appreciated the Bronx Warriors is actually shot in New York. Uh, the derelict and abandoned cityscape helped consider a grittiness, and it has good supporting actors as well. Fred Williamson, eh? I mean, that guy's great value as the ogre. He's like this too, super smooth and macho dude. Apparently, he says he tried to instruct Gregory in the ways of being manly on screen. So either right. it's his, so either it's his fault, you know, <laughs> or the lessons just didn't take one of the two. Or um, or or he was worse to begin with. That's a more terrifying thought. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> or, or 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 um, he was actually giving him the wrong lessons to try and just make himself look good. You know? It's yeah, like, true. Yeah, just hitch your jeans a bit higher. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Vic Morrow's in it, and he really plays the back rows as the hammer, cackling wildly, but also getting a pretty cool line when a henchman says, you're playing with fire, and he replies, I know, and I love it. And you definitely <laughs> believe that he does in that moment, which is kind of cool. The plot, though, is a real drag. Most of it is taken up by Hammer trying to make Trash and the Ogre distrust each other. But since we're so far ahead of those two, there's little tension in watching them catch up to us. You know, yeah. you, know, you, you, know what's being, you know what's happening, and you kind of trust that these guys are smart enough to figure it out. The Warriors-like trip across the gang tours is pretty pretty flat as well, in part because it's really short. It's more a walk to the corner shop than a harrowing voyage. And the gangs are really silly. There's a skater gang, a pasty de- degenerate band of sewer dwellers, and an honest-to-God Broadway-style tap routine gang. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So just, uh, you're no threat at all. <laughs> None of them seem remotely threatening. Uh, and it's a really good thing that the film finishes with a sequence that's I remember super clearly. It's burnt into my teen memories as a bunch of cops arrive on horseback armed with flamethrowers. Right. I don't know if you remember this. They're just riding around, just setting people on fire all over <laughs> the place. It's actually pretty brutal. The only yeah. person who really gets out of that is Trash, who's kind of hit by a flamethrower and escapes with only his vest singed off, <laughs> which is ridiculous, <laughs> eh? You know, but fun stuff. Um, still, so got his jeans, reckon, still got his high-waisted jeans on. Still though. got his high-waisted jeans on. <laughs> Uh, so look, can I recommend 1990 The Box Warriors? Yes, sort of. It's a trashy cult throwback to my childhood. And for that, I, I enjoyed it immensely. But it's pretty goofy and fun anyway. Mark Gregory is kind of a camp film lover's dream. I mean, oh, what a find. Fred Williamson is an action B fan's delight. And the whole thing is so heavily 80s Italian exploitation that I think many people will get a kick out of it. Yeah, I mean, you made me want to rewatch it just for the... You know, um, like you say, I'll probably watch it and then get s- stuck into about 10 minutes of the sequel and then go, oh, maybe yeah. not. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember the, the second one the most vividly for some reason. Is that right? Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I think I think I watched it first. Right. And I was probably confused as to what the hell was going on, you know. It's like uh, so intricately plotted, you know, it's like Godfather, <laughs> watching Godfather 2 first before you seen Godfather 1. But um, well, I definitely started 2 and there's no real there's no real references back to one, you know, it's, yeah. um, um, there is surprisingly the tap tap routine gang are still there, which shocked me. Uh, like of all the gangs <laughs> to survive, one's even <laughs> tap dancing. Yeah. Um, and trash is obviously there and he has parents, which are never brought up in the first film, but they're only brought up in the second film to die quite quickly. Spoiler right. alert guys. Um, it's not much of a shock. Yeah. So um, it seems, it seems it's very definitely a film you could just watch, you know, cold and you'd be okay yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned vic morrow as well of course um he hmm. died the next year i think um he did twilight zone um i uh, did you see did you know that his daughter is um jennifer jason lee no yeah i found that out uh, a month or so ago a couple of months ago 
Oh, wow. All right. Well, that's um, my second film. Um, how about uh, you, Duncan? As listeners will know by now, uh, one of my favorite Italian directors, if not my favorite Italian director, is Vittorio De Sica. So it's with some joy that I not only discovered a treasure trove of the great filmmaker's work in decent resolution on YouTube, but also one I'd been wanting to watch for a while now, which is 1946's Shoeshine. Lately, Shoeshine has got a little lost in the shuffle of his canon. It came a couple of years before his international breakthrough, The Bicycle Thieves. Uh, but Shoeshine won an honorary Academy Award in 1947, and it was a precursor to the best foreign language film, uh, which I think was the next year. Um, so Shoeshine follows the exploits of two boys who earn a living shining shoes on the streets of Rome. They are unknowingly swept into a criminal act by two older men and have to suffer the consequences in a juvenile prison. But Deseka doesn't pile on the misery. Instead, a joyfulness pervades the film world wars, poverty, corruption, the other background. Uh, the film shows both the pleasure and desolation in the situations the kids find themselves in. And it eventually uses the two protagonists' loyalty to, to each other to drive a wedge between them. And the seeker uses close-ups so sparingly that when he finally employs them, they have real emotional resonance. Two important decisions in close succession by both of the leads are made up in captivating close-ups. The film manages to do sleight of hand with the narrative, never telegraphing the characters' journeys, and seemingly happy to show us their lives without leading up to a typical climax. In this period, De Sica's films have markers that really bear his auteur stamp, usually animals that signify purity or freedom. In this case, it's a horse that the boys purchase with their ill-gotten gains and remains their single unifying thread as the fabric of their relationship is pulled apart. Seeker also isn't interested in villains. It is the state, the impersonal impact of the system, which takes its toll. Look, the neorealism directors were among the first to use real locations and child actors, and the child actors here are without any cloying affectations, giving us believable and absorbing portrayals of childhood. And look, if you need a recommendation with only slightly more cinematic clout than me, then there is what Orson Welles said, what Seeker can do that I can't do. I ran shoeshine recently and the camera disappeared. The screen disappeared. It was just life. Ah, oh, what a great quote. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I really recommend checking this one out. Uh, if you haven't seen any of the seeker stuff before, uh, I know you have Simon, but if any listeners yeah. haven't, um, this isn't a bad one to start with actually. Um, it, it it runs along a lot of the same lines as uh, Bicycle Thieves and Umberto D. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and it's in pretty good resolution. I was quite impressed. I think they might have actually clipped this off the Criterion Collection because the oh, subtitle, okay. yeah, the subtitles in this are really first class. Whereas with Girl with a Pistol, they were a little bit more random. Um, but this one was, yeah, really on point. So, yeah, I can recommend checking out Shoe Shine. Yeah. Oh, that's great! What a great recommendation, man. Um, I love, obviously, um, Umberto D and Bicycle Thieves. Uh, I, I love just, you know, yeah. um, landmark films. So. Yeah, yeah. And I think you get a real kick out of this as well. Um, yeah. Uh, the other, the other um, films I want to say, they're all on YouTube. I'm going to kind of save him up for a later date. But there's actually a lot of Ingmar Bergman films on YouTube in pretty good condition too. So, yeah, um, yeah there's another just throw that out there i i resisted going in there because i was on this italian kick of watching films but um yeah if anyone's into bergman then there's a lot there which is good and what's your uh, final one how, i mean yeah, how no, can I, you how can you top bronx warriors man i i feel i probably can i feel i probably can um well that's say i feel like you and i have done very very different approaches to this so but that's <laughs> <laughs> that's fine my final pick is a release that's achieved somewhat of a cult reputation like the room or birdemic once it was rediscovered by the alamo draft house where it became a midnight movie staple it's a title i've run across a few times and mentally filed away as something to check out someday maybe because while i've certainly seen my share of bad films i seldom seek out deliberately bad films sure it can be fun to discover them by accident i'm looking at you rock and roll nightmare but my experience is that it's not always the same thrill to jump on a b-film bandwagon Luckily, 1987's Miami Connection turned out to be a bit of a blast. <laughs> Called Miami Connection, no doubt because of it being set in Orlando, it's that timeless tale of the best friends who ever friended, who all go to school together, hang out together, live together, play in the same kick-ass rock band together, and have black belts and taekwondo together. 
it is the 80s of 80s action openings. Um, throwing all the icons of the era's low-budget action films at the screen. Ninjas within the first two minutes. Uh, hoodlums with Uzis. I mean, Uzis were such a thing in the 80s, and then they just disappeared, eh? Like, nobody's an Uzi nowadays, but in the 80s, every bad guy had an Uzi. You know, maybe one in each hand, you know? Maybe they lost it. Yeah, maybe they lost them in the stock market crash of 87, you know, like it's just yeah, like... Yeah, could have yeah. been. Yeah, just ninjas, stock and ninjas too, just plummeted. Oh, yeah, um, like I, I put all my money in uh, shurikens yeah. and, and, and uh, Uzis. <laughs> That'll never go out of style. Oh, look, while we're there, throwing stars everywhere in those opening minutes. And what a, what a barometer of the time that is. And to this day, I don't understand the throwing star. Like, you know, as a kid, I thought they were awesome. But they look mostly annoying to me. Like nowadays, like if someone threw one at me and it hit me in the chest, I feel it would be irritating. Like, ow, what did you do that for? You know? But in the movies, a ninja star to the back is just death, isn't it? You know? <laughs> it's and instantaneous as well. It's so quick. It's like being just a bullet through the heart. Um, and yet, yet they just look, I don't know, they just look quite troubling, like throwing a tin can lid at someone. <laughs> if there are any ninjas listening, maybe write in, go to our Facebook page, help clear this up for me. Explain this to me, maybe. All right. Then we meet the band Dragon Sound, playing their brand of weak source rock, singing a song about friendship, no less. There's maybe three guys with guitars, but all I hear is synth, which irritates the hell out of me. You know, I'm a metal <laughs> fan. If you've got three guys playing guitar, I want to hear guitars. I don't want to hear just like keyboards. I don't know how that works, but everyone in the crowd in the club are loving it. So obviously I'm wrong. It turns out one of the guys in the band, probably the dorkiest one of them, is dating the band's sole woman, who inconveniently or conveniently is also the sister of the town's gang leader, who happens to hate Dragon Sound and want them run out of town. This, I'll tell you what, this is all laid down the most painful of exposition dumps as they walk from school, surrounded by a sea of extras who look at the camera all the time. You know, I was so distracted by the fact that everyone's just looking at the camera. Then the girlfriend's brother shows up with some bad guys who are all the worst-looking bad guys. This film is filthy with terrible-looking bad guys. Like, everyone in Miami Connection knows martial arts, and everyone's a tough guy, and yet no one looks like a tough guy, and no one looks like they know martial arts. <laughs> it's perplexing, but no matter how average Joe all these guys are, they still try to pull it off. They're just like, you've rounded up five regular guys from your office, put them in sleeveless tees, mirrored shades, bone earrings, and the ultimate sign that you're a badass in an 80s action film. Fingerless gloves. And and that's it. That's the, you know, that's the concession to the them being tough guys. Look, I said no one looks tough or looks like they, they can do martial arts. But that's not strictly true because the film's lead, co-director, co-writer, co-producer, VK Kim, clearly has some moves. Alas, he has no presence, a bland to pockmark face, and the most halting delivery you could imagine. It's surely not his fault that his English is so broken. But it's probably not a good idea to give yourself so much of the dialogue if you know you're going to struggle to deliver it. Because the action is, I mean, it's okay. No one bar two or maybe three cast members can fill off a fight scene. Uh, there are lots of regular-looking schmucks pausing to get punched or waiting their turns to get kicked in the face. And you can yeah. really sense that. You know, they're standing there just in a pose waiting for it. But it's no worse than a truckload of cheesy action films I've watched in my life. Certainly no worse than Bronx Warriors. <laughs> uh, you know, no, where a film like this always comes undone is when it tries to replicate the experience of actual humans having actual human interactions. There's a subplot about one of the friends reconnecting with his long lost father. And, uh, and my man Kim stumbles at the line, I didn't know you had a father, which is wild <laughs> enough. I mean, of course he had a father. But this is the film's big emotional scene. And it's clear one of the other cast members is just doing their utmost not to laugh in the background. <laughs> And I'm, I'm not even going to get into the makeout scene amongst the waves on the beach. I'll just say it's, it's, it's no from here to eternity, man. It's, um, I actually found myself laughing out loud during that makeout scene. Anyway, cutting to the chase. There are a series of gang brawls, all much the same, before the girl's friend's brother is killed. The girlfriend shrugs it off and it's left to ninjas to take on the rock band, which leads to maybe my second favorite line of the film. They will not escape the Miami ninja. Miami ninja. <laughs> I don't know why that creeps me out. My first favorite line of the film occurs when the ninjas on motorbikes, biker ninjas, show up and Kim says, uh-oh, ninjas. I just, <laughs> I just love that. Something about that line plus the delivery just killed me. The ninjas have swords, but are marginally more dangerous than regular street thugs. It made me wonder what the deal is with the ninjas. 
do you become a ninja and get the suit or does the suit maketh the ninja? <laughs> because I'm unclear as to why ninjas are a thing to be worried about. I mean, in this film particularly, if, if they didn't have swords, would they be any more dangerous than anyone else? Also, earlier in the movie, Dragon Sound sang a song called Against the Ninja. This is well before any ninja action taking place, which is weird because it kind of spells out the plot of the film. But on its own, it's an odd song to sing. I mean, if I wrote a song called Fight the Vikings, and then a week later I had a fight with actual Vikings, I would consider that an eerie coincidence. You know? <laughs> I have to assume that in the world of Miami Connection, ninjas are fairly commonplace. So writing a song about fighting ninjas is, you know, isn't a far-fetched scenario. It could happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> so they battle the ninjas, and it gets, I was actually quite surprised, quite bloody here. There's some decapitations and things. And then everyone kind of out of nowhere lives happily ever after. And then there's a still frame and a title card with a message I won't ruin you for you because if you're going to see this film, it's worth hanging around for that title card, I'll tell you. And that's Miami Connection. And I won't lie, I enjoyed this quite a bit. Sure, it would have been better watched with a crowd. I mean, I sense it's one of those films, you know, like The Room. But it's transcendently bad in the way that only someone desperately and sincerely trying to make a good film, but just so ill-equipped to do so, could make. And I love those films. I, I dug the experience of watching it on my own. Uh, it's, it's a real one of a kind. It would be better with a really great audience, though. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I am aware of this film um, mainly because sure. of uh, How Did This Get Made podcast. Oh, did they do one on it? They did it, and they, uh, I think it's probably in their top five favourite films I've ever done. In the oh, I can see why it would be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but- yeah. But you know what I mean? I mean, for, 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 for a true bad film to be an enjoyable bad film, you have to have the sense that the people making it really weren't up to it, but they were super passionate about making it anyway, you know? Yeah, that's right. You, you, you can't have a half-assed bad film. It has to be really passionate. There has to be a passion and a drive behind it. Yeah. You know? Um, I, I definitely get the sense that um, VK Kim here, you know, wanted this film made in the worst possible way. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like it. I, I, like you say, I like how we've kind of um, gone from uh, like a whiplash effect from uh, the Seekers shoeshine into um, <laughs> Miami yeah. Connection. Uh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, I mean, listeners, we, we, we never discuss what we're going to talk about on this podcast, you know. I no. had no idea what films you were going to talk about, you, you know. Yeah, you that's know right. What I was going to talk about. But, but I also like that it, it's, um, it, it shows the kind of breadth of our taste. Yeah, and like I say, um, for me, this month was all about just picking some silly, fun films, I think. That's, that's what I was in the mood for, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, really, it's really good to hear. I'm really looking forward to checking out some of those ones. Um, the, uh, look forward to watching Bronx Warriors again, and uh, definitely going to watch Miami Connection now. Oh, totally, and, and Shoeshine, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I definitely want to watch that now. Spoiler alert. Okay, so that's the... Uh, podcast for this month we've uh we've done our first um lockdown podcast yeah and i also just like to uh apologize if there's any kind of audio discrepancies between simon and i uh if i'm too loud or if there's dropouts or anything obviously uh technology is all a bit um different and new so uh thanks for bearing with us yeah this is all a first for us guys we'll get it <laughs> and, uh, so simon what was your favorite film of the month other than miami connection <laughs> other than miami connection Bronx Warriors. No, <laughs> uh, I I would say it was probably Paddington Two. Oh, uh, nice. So, yeah, what a lovely film, man. So we uh, Tony and I watched Paddington together, and then a couple of days later, thought, well, I mean, that's a lovely film, and then we uh, went for Paddington Two, and you know, they're both really enjoyable watches. So they're sweetly made. There's uh, Michael Gondry sort of nature to the design of them, which is really, you know, a real pleasure to look at. Um, great cast, great British cast. Paddington 2 has got Hugh Grant in it, though, and he just delivers this really fun, deliberately hammy at times performance. He's really having a great time, and so are we watching it, you know? Mm. Um, it's a re- really sweet film. And um, what about you, Duncan? Oh, that's cool. Uh, I have, I've, just quickly on those, I have heard that from a couple of people, actually, that they enjoyed both of those. Um, yeah. So we'll have to check that out. Um, yeah. Y- yeah, so the, uh, look, I really enjoyed Shoeshine. I think that was my probably the favourite film I saw this month. But I just wanted to mention Milius, uh, the 2013 doco that focuses on folk hero screenwriter John Milius. Oh, cool. Right. Have, yes. you, have you seen this? No, I haven't yet, but it, um, it came up on my sky, uh, and so I've recorded it. 
Oh, so okay. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet, but I have it waiting for me. Okay, cool. Well, I'm, I'm not going to give in, anything away you don't already know. Um, it, look, it reminded me of the Roger Corman film. That, it reminded me of the Roger Corman doco, speaking of um, Death Race 2000. But uh, the Roger Corman doco that just kind of had some giants of cinema really happy to sing the praises of a contemporary. So mm. this is Spielberg, Scorsese, Coppola, Lucas, Eastwood, Schwarzenegger, and Harrison Ford, surprisingly, all yeah. telling like really entertaining stories about his antics on about his antics on set and his contribution to their own projects. But Milius wrote the feeling lucky punk line from Dirty Harry. Mm. He wrote the Indianapolis speech from Jaws, the smell of napalm in the morning from Apocalypse Now, and came up with the title. And from Conan the Barbarian, the Lamentations of the Woman, and the line we used in at least over half our eighty-six podcasts, contemplate this on the tree of woe. Yeah, um, Milius cultivated an image as a right-wing gun nut, even bringing weapons to production meetings. But he is also fiercely intelligent, principled, and determined to get his vision across. Uh, the love that his friends have for him is evident, and some of the stories are like really fun. Uh, he also did Big Wednesday, uh, which was the first kind of serious surf film. Uh, yeah. He was a big surfer himself, which I didn't realize. But also, I think any documentary where Charlie Sheen is shaking his head at disbelief at some of your antics, I think, you know, you kind of <laughs> probably crossed the line. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, any any cinephile, um, I'm sure it's on people's lists. But um, yeah, I was really pleased when this showed up on Sky and I, I just watched it the other yeah. day. But yeah, so it's a really entertaining watch. Oh, that's great. I mean, we're both Milius fans here, eh? Oh, for sure, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they've got a nice little nod to... I was waiting for them to bring up the Big Lebowski. Um, and uh, I, I won't oh, give yeah, it away. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't give it away, but just give a little nod to it. So just just watch right through to the, the, the rest of the, um, the end, end credits. Oh, great um, stuff. Yeah. Cool. And so um, the song we're going out to, Simon, is... Friends from Dragon Sound who are, of course, the band from Miami Connection. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is the first time you meet the band uh, playing in the club. <laughs> in the club. Playing, playing all their keyboards. Yeah, playing all their keyboards. <laughs> yeah. A <laughs> lot, lot of shirtlessness going on too, by the way. Um, nice. Yeah, a lot of guys with no shirts on. Yeah, so great stuff, great stuff. So, look, I hope you guys enjoyed our uh, lockdown lineup. Yeah, and we'll be back next month, with, um, possibly from uh, lockdown again. Um, yeah, I would think so. All right, stay <laughs> safe, everyone. Cheers, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. All right, take care. under 12, now rate a big 70 points.